in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is asked a question. Jesus is teaching about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about how uh, in the New Covenant, the Ten Commandments now really have been encapsulated into two. The first and most important, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says the second, which is right behind that, is love your neighbor as you love yourself. And he's asked the question by someone really trying to catch him in a uh, dishonesty. And he, he's asked the question, who is my neighbor? And his answer is what we come to know as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Probably the most popular, most famous parable in all of Jesus' teaching. He tells the tale of a man who is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is about a 22-mile trek. And on that trek, it's a very treacherous, dangerous uh, trek. It's through mountainous passes. It, there are areas that if you're traveling alone, it was dangerous. And his listeners would have recognized what he was talking about. And he tells the story of a man who is traveling. And he is set upon by robbers, set upon by thieves. And they beat him. And they steal from him and they take everything he has. As a matter of fact, they leave him laying in the side of the road into the ditch almost dead, given up for dead, and they walk away. And Jesus tells a story of how coming on the opposite side of that road is a priest, a Hebrew priest. And as he's walking, he sees the man, but instead of helping, he continues on to the other side. He, he makes a permanent decision to go to the other side of the road. Then Jesus said a second man comes, and he is a Levite, and the Levites were the most religious. It'd be, a, it'd be like saying he was a churchgoer. He was a good church-going, every Sunday kind of guy, and as he comes up, he sees the man in the ditch. And instead of going to help, he turns to the other side. And then he says a third man came along, and this man was a Samaritan. Now you need to understand to the Jewish listeners, Samaritans were third class, fourth class citizens. They were considered unclean. They were considered heretical in their teaching. They were considered uh, less than, less than almost animals. Matter of fact, there's a Jewish proverb that says, it's better to marry a pig than to marry a Samaritan. That's what they thought of them. And so they would have automatically understood that this Samaritan was not near as good as the church going Levite or the priest. But as the Samaritan came upon where this man was laying injured, Jesus says that he made an effort. Matter of fact, I love it in chapter 10, verse 33, he says, He had pity on the man. And the word pity there is a, is a neat phrase. Uh, the word he uses for pity in the Greek terminology means he had a, a, a burning in his intestines. He had a, a yearning in his intestines. And you understand that in, in Jesus' time, they believed that the emotions came from your stomach. They believed the stomach was where emotions generated. And so this was a deep burning. He was moved by what he saw in the man. But he didn't just pity him because I, I think probably the Levite probably pitied him. And I, I think probably the priest probably even felt sorry for the guy. But the pity that was in this man's heart and this man's uh, gut caused him to go and help. And he goes and he begins to bandage up this wounded Hebrew. He begins to take care of him, begins to wash his wounds. He puts him on his own donkey and he takes him into town. And when he gets to town, he drops him off at an inn and he pays a doctor to come and look at him. He pays the innkeeper to watch after him. And the reason I like this parable is because it is a perfect illustration for the Beatitude that we're going to study this morning, that we're going to look at for just a few minutes. We've been studying through the Beatitudes. You remember the Beatitudes are the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. They're the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And it is Jesus describing the character, the nature of those who are Christ followers. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, a Christ follower, a Christian, then He is describing you. 
But he's describing you as God has created you to be. He is describing you as a person who has given every area of their life over to God who allows the Holy Spirit to control every area of their life. And we've looked at four of them, and now we come to the fifth one. And if you've been with us, you may recognize that the first four Beatitudes all deal with our relationship to God. They deal with uh, us and how we interact with God and our response to God. And these second four enter into a new area to where he is going to begin to talk about how uh, the outflow of those first four draw us to our interaction with others, how we are called to interact with others as believers in Jesus Christ. And so he says here in verse 7, if you have a Bible, chapter 5, and you can see it in your order of service, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now remember as we study each one of these characteristics, these are traits. These uh, are not a list of things that we try to act on or try to put in our lives. These are traits that, that are a part of who we are. They make up our character. And they're not something you can do in your own strength. They're not something you can produce. You can't say, I want to be more merciful, so I'm going to go out and try to be more merciful. It is something that is generated from your heart by the Holy Spirit. And each one of these are interdependent on the other. The very first one we looked at was being poor in spirit. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And we discovered that being poor in spirit is having a right view of God and a right view of yourself. When we really understand who God is, that he's not just some grandpa upstairs or a man upstairs or a genie that we can throw wishes at, that he is a righteous and holy God that is called to judge his creation. And we recognize that we are his creation and that by sin we have corrupted that relationship. It brings about a spiritual poverty, a spiritual bankruptcy. We realize that I am nothing. I can do nothing. I have nothing apart from God. And that will lead us to a place of mourning. And that's the second. Blessed are those who mourn. And that mourning is a recognition of what sin does to our lives. When you really understand the power of sin. When you understand how big a deal sin is, that sin, that little white lie that you excused or you rationalized was enough to put Jesus on the cross. If that was the only sin in the world, that sin was corrupting and destructive enough that Jesus would have had to go to the cross. When we recognize the power and the nature of sin, not just in our lives, but in our world, when we think about 9-11 and that, the results of corruption and evil in our world, hatred is because of sin. It drives us to a place of brokenness. We become broken. We become um, spiritually broken. And that place of brokenness will always drive us to recognize that we don't know what we're doing. That we need someone bigger than us in control. And we recognize that God, who knows all things, can see all things and can do all things. And we give Him control of our life. That's meekness. Meekness is power under His control. It's when we say, you take my attitudes, you take my, my heart, you take my actions, you take everything, God. And when we are, find ourselves in a place of meekness and asking God, this mighty, righteous creator of the world, to be in charge of everything in our lives, we are drawn to know more about Him. We are drawn to know how beautiful his grace and mercy is, how precious His love is. And so we hunger and thirst. That's the fourth one. But as we hunger and thirst and as we recognize all that we've been given, what Jesus is saying is that will produce within us an attitude of mercy towards those around us. You see, when we recognize who we are, when we recognize how much we've been given, when we recognize that God is in control, we have no other choice than to be merciful to those that we encounter on a daily basis. And so that's why Jesus can come here and say, blessed, happy, joyful are the merciful. 
Now, many people, when they talk about mercy, they take grace and mercy and they use them together. They're, they're sometimes interchangeable, but they have completely different meanings. See, grace is unmerited favor. Grace is God's favor to us that we don't deserve. You can't earn grace. And while mercy is connected to grace and grace flows out of mercy, mercy is the hard attitude that withholds what you do deserve. You see, mercy recognizes that you deserve what you're getting. You deserve justice. You deserve all that is coming your way. But instead of allowing you to receive it, mercy says, I'm going to withhold that. But not only that, I'm going to give you something you don't deserve in return. And that's where grace and mercy are connected. The Greek word, I think, helps sometimes that Jesus gives here. It's a Greek word, which is alios, which is A-L-E-O-S, alios. And alios simply means to whitewash. It's a picture of somebody going to a, a, a wall that has been defamed or, or messed up and whitewashing. Covering over is another good definition. Uh, it's also used to mean paying off debt. It is a picture of someone canceling a debt. It's the word that Jesus uses in the parable of the merciful servant. If you remember that story, a guy uh, owes the king a lot of money and he has people owing him money. He goes to the king because he can't pay the king back and he begs for mercy. He begs for alios. He begs, please cover over my debts. And the king takes care of his debts, but then he goes to the people that owe him money and he doesn't cancel their debt. There is no mercy there. And so he is judged because of it. That's the term here, alios. That's the term that he's trying to use. It is a canceling of a debt. It's also used in the New Testament to describe God and describe how God treats us. Listen to these terms. Ephesians 4.2, for God is rich in mercy. Titus 3.5 says we are saved by His alios, His mercy. 1 Peter 1.3 says in His great alios, mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope. You see, I want you to gather what mercy is because I want you to understand what Jesus is asking of you. What Jesus is saying is already in your heart right now. See, it's more than sympathetic. It's more than a feeling. It's more than feeling sorry for somebody. It's more than just doing something out of an act of kindness. It's all of those things, but it's more than that. William Barclay, the theologian, says this and defines it this way. Mercy is when we get inside someone else's skin until we can see things with their eyes, until we can think things with their mind, until we can feel things with their feeling, and then we are called to move and act on their behalf because of what we see, because of what we feel, because of what we understand. You see, mercy always involves action. Mercy always involves us doing something. You see, the, the, the Samaritan, he was moved by pity. He recognized that there was a moving in his heart, but that wasn't mercy. It was that pity, that moving in his heart that moved him to act. And the moment he began to do something, that was by showing mercy. That was what Jesus is calling us to. Mercy, when just a theory, when you just talk about it, is meaningless. It always has to require our acting on it. What Jesus says here in this Greek word, it's a continuing possessive term. Uh, if, if you know the, the English language or if you've studied English, you know that that means he's not saying blessed are those who are mercy or give mercy. What does he say? Blessed are the merciful. That means it's not just a one-time act. That means it is a part of your life. It is an ongoing process. So you can't say, well, this is me because yesterday I gave a guy some money or this is me because I saw a guy on the side of the road that needed help and I pulled over and helped him. It's not a one-time act. It is a continuation of who we are. It outflows from us and causes us to act. 
Now, I understand that most of us as Christians, we have a degree of mercy. We, we've been saved by mercy. God has given you mercy. So we have a tendency to, to have some mercy. But most of our mercy stops at the level of sympathy. It stops at the level of, of understanding that we feel sorry for people that are less than us. And you see, the thing that troubles most believers is because mercy is more than just forgiving. It's more than just feeling sorry. See, a lot of us can go to the whitewash part. We like forgiving, and some of us struggle with forgiving others, but we work on it. We say, I can forgive. But see, mercy goes beyond just forgiving. Mercy says, not only am I going to whitewash what you did, I'm going to cancel your debt, then I'm going to come and help you get back on your feet. And that's where we struggle. It's an action. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. That starts that way, but it will always move you to action. And the perfect illustration, the best illustration of that is Jesus himself. See, God didn't sit up in heaven and say, well, if you believe in me, you can be saved. John 3.16 doesn't say, uh, you know, whosoever believes in me can be saved. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes can be saved. It's not what it says, is it? It says, for God so loved the world that he what? He gave. He acted. He gave His Son so that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have abundant life. You see, it was in that act that He showed His elios. He showed His mercy. Because by sending Jesus as an avenue towards salvation, He not only canceled our debt, but what did He do? What does it say at the end of that? He gives us abundant life. It is mercy. And that's the picture of what He's trying to say. Now, I want to help you. and, And I don't like sometimes doing this because I think sometimes when pastors give you examples, uh, we take those examples and we try to live those examples instead of trying to live the heart attitude that leads to those examples. But I want to give you some examples of how mercy might look today. Of some things that we can say, well, this is what mercy looks like lived out in your everyday life. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples. And each of these examples can't be taken on their own. They have to fit in together as a whole to make mercy. So let me just give them to you. The first one is a merciful person will always be patient with difficult people. A merciful person will always be patient with difficult people. Do you have any difficult people in your life? Maybe difficult isn't a good word. Do you have any odd people in your life? Strange people in your life? Obnoxious people in your life? Now I know you're, right now you're thinking of that person, aren't you? We all do. Everybody has somebody in their life that grates on them that drives them crazy, that gets on their nerves. People that sometimes we just want to walk away from. How do you treat those people? Those people that drive you crazy. You see, the merciful will always be patient. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, Encourage the timid, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. See, it's easy. It's easy. To default and walk away. It's easy to default and not listen. It's easy to get angry and lash out at them. But that's not what mercy produces. Mercy says, I'm patient with them. I'm kind to them. You see, what, what, happens, when, what happens when obnoxious turns to just plain rude? Surely God doesn't want us to be merciful to those that are rude, that those that are mean to us, that those that do difficult things. You don't think that the Samaritan probably experienced some mean, rude, and obnoxious words and hurt from Jewish people? 
See, it's not a caveat. He doesn't say, blessed are those who are merciful to those that are nice. Blessed are those who are merciful to those who are understanding. Blessed are those who are merciful to those that are kind in return. You see, what we need to do as Christians is we need to look beyond the outside behavior and look at the inside heart. Because you see, most of the time when people are hurting others, it's because they are hurting themselves. It's because they're dealing with loneliness. They're dealing with a cry for attention. They're dealing with depression. They're dealing with struggle. And they lash out by hurting others. So instead of seeing behavior, we need to see the heart. And in seeing the heart, we need to be patient with them. Instead of pointing fingers, instead of criticizing, instead of judging, we need to do what Romans 15, 7 says, accept one another in the Lord, just as Christ accepted you. See, all of us in this room are strange. All of us in this room are obnoxious. All of us in this room are rude. All of us in this room get on somebody's nerves. But God looked past all of that, and He saw your heart, and He loved you and saved you. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are patient with others. The second thing that merciful shows is a merciful person will always forgive the fallen. You see, forgiveness and mercy always go hand in hand. You can never be merciful without practicing forgiveness. Mercy will always flow out of a forgiving heart. Listen to what Colossians 3 says. Bear with each other. That's patience, what we just talked about. And forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. See, he doesn't just say... Forgive, he gives us the standard. He said, not only just do you forgive, but forgive the same way that God forgives you. Now, I know it's difficult. We've talked about forgiveness, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. And I know it's a struggle for us. Because it's tough to forgive people that hurt you. It's tough to forgive those that have disappointed you. It's tough to let go and set free those people who have done wrong to us. We want justice, right? The only problem with that is justice is the opposite end of mercy. And you see, we need to remember all the time that mercy flows out of a mourning heart. Blessed are those who mourn, spiritual bankruptcy. What does a mourning heart mourn over? It mourns over its sin. See, so many times the reason we are not forgiving and the reason we don't give mercy is because we've forgotten how much forgiveness we needed. See, we've forgotten how much we needed God's grace and His mercy and His forgiveness. We've forgotten how much we depended on God forgiving us. You see, when we recognize just what we've done and how much we've been forgiven for, it will always drive us to forgive others around us. You can't be merciful without forgiveness. Now, it may be hard for you to understand someone else's struggle. It may be hard for you to be impatient with someone else's temptation. I don't know how they could do that. I can't believe that person fell into that trap. I don't know. But we understand our temptation. And when you understand your temptation, you understand, but by the grace of God, there go I. That could be me. And in understanding that that could be me, there always is a move to forgive. Merciful people don't hold grudges. Merciful people don't point fingers. They always lend a helping hand. See, mercy is patient. Mercy is forgiving. Go back to our parable again. As I said, the Good Samaritan, he, he could have had all kinds of excuses why he didn't want to help. And the world around him probably would have said it's okay. You see, those excuses that you're giving right now, why you're not merciful, the world around you will pat you on the back and say, you're right. You've been mistreated. You've been done wrong. People have hurt you. People have held you back. People have done things to you. It's okay. But that's not what the Word of God says. See, the Samaritan could have come up with a list. As I said, I'm sure he was hurt. 
I'm sure there were people in the Jewish faith that probably mistreated his family. Somewhere along the way, you know, Samaritans couldn't even go in the same places that Jewish people were. I'm sure there were all kinds of reasons, but he didn't let that stop him. Why? Because he was motivated by mercy. He was driven by mercy. You see, mercy will always be patient. Mercy will always be forgiving. And, and the third thing, and these all go together, you can't have one without the other, is mercy will always help those that are hurting. See, mercy can't just sit back. Mercy can't just stand on the sidelines. You see, it's not enough just to be patient. It's not enough just to be forgiving. See, a lot of us can say that. Okay, Rusty, I will forgive, and, and I'm being patient. I know I'm working on it, and, and I'm trying. But, but are you acting on it when someone is in need? Are you helping those around you that are hurting? Are you going out and meeting the needs of other people? You see, mercy is love and action. The Samaritan moved beyond pity and moved to action. Moves beyond feeling sorry for somebody or sympathy. You know, the thing about it is, I'm sure the Levite and the priest both felt sorry for the guy. But they're the bad guys in the story. Why are they the bad guys? Because they could have done something and they didn't. Listen to what 1 John 3, 17 says in the Message Bible. And I want you to hear this. If you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love in you? It disappears and you made it disappear. You see a brother or sister in need and you have the ability to help and you do nothing. The Bible says, where's God's love? I don't know about you, but that stabs like a dagger. Think of all the times that we could have done something, should have done something. You see a merciful person, we, they see somebody hurting. They see somebody in need. They will always want to get involved. I remember... An old TV show when I was a kid, the Flip Wilson show, and that shows my age. Some of you, a lot of don't remember that, but he was a comedian. And they would ask him about religion, and his response was always that he was a Jehovah bystander as opposed to a Jehovah witness. And it was a big joke. And as I thought about that, I thought, oh, that, that's who we are in the church today. Christian bystanders instead of Christian witnesses. It could describe most of us. You see, mercy will always move you to action. It will always cause you to get involved. And I have to admit that probably one of my greatest struggles is in this area. For those of you that know me, anyone that's ever been around me, you know I struggle with the idea of mercy. Matter of fact, in several churches that I served in, I was the uh, no-go person. And what I mean by the no-go person is uh, in those churches we had benevolence people that would help people that would come to the church in need. And uh, those people were full of mercy. They were the most merciful people to a fault. They wanted to help everyone and give to everyone. But there come a time in some churches and people will take advantage of that. And they'll come back and they'll come back and they'll come back. And we will have done more for them than we've done for everyone else. And but they'll keep coming back and finally if you don't help them find a way to get to a place where they don't need your help then you're just repeating a problem but those people that were in charge couldn't say no they couldn't look those people in the eye and say we're going to come up with a plan so you know what they did they said call rusty <laughs> and i'd get a call on the phone and they'd say we need you and so i would come in because i had no problem saying no i have no mercy I struggle with it. Matter of fact, when I take spiritual gift tests, 
I'm so high on the prophetic and the preaching and teaching that mercy doesn't even show up on the test. That means that I see things black and white and, and I can be blunt in saying what I believe is black and white. And in that, I have a tendency not to show mercy. And so several years ago, I got convicted about it. God began to work me over. Rusty, the Bible says, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who show mercy. Your heart is to be one that brings mercy to others. So I did what most of us do when we get convicted. What do we do? We work at being better, right? And I came up with a list. These are some things that I can do to be more merciful. And I fell into the trap that most of us fall into. I tried to produce mercy in my own strength. I tried to be more forgiving. I tried to be patient. I tried to look for ways to walk out mercy, to share, to help others. But all I could produce in my own strength was more sympathy. I became more empathetic. I felt more of their need. I was more sympathetic to what they were feeling. But it didn't produce mercy because I can't produce mercy. And you can't produce mercy. Matter of fact, what happens is I fell into the trap that most Christians fall into. I thought I could control my Christian walk. See, I thought I was in charge of my faith and deciding what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do. But that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is trying to say here in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, your faith is supposed to control you. You don't produce mercy because you tried and you worked at it. You produce mercy because it's who you are. And so many of us get caught in that trap that I was caught into is we're trying to work at it, we're trying to do better, when in reality it's a time that you're supposed to let the Holy Spirit take control of you. You see, you'll get burned out. So many in the church get burned out because we're trying to do things because we think that's what a Christian is supposed to do instead of living the way that Christ has called you to be. There's a difference. Your Christian walk is supposed to control you. Mercy is not something you can just put on and work on. It's got to be produced by the Holy Spirit. And as I struggled with that, I came back to this passage. And I discovered something that really began to help me. So maybe it'll help you. And this is what I want to close with. As I read this passage again, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful. Did you see what the promise is? For they will be shown mercy. It's the only Beatitude that the promise is the same as the act. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, if you read that just at face value, it's real easy to fall into a trap that I fell into that some of you fall into. Because you see, it sounds like I get mercy by producing mercy. See, it sounds like what I get more mercy, I earn God's mercy according to how much mercy I give. And it's real close to some of the teachings on forgiveness. I mean, Jesus says what? Forgive as you will be forgiven. By the same measure that you forgive others, you will be held to. I mean, the, the Lord's Prayer says what? Forgive us our debtor as we forgive our debtors. It sounds like that we earn forgiveness by forgiving others. It sounds like here at place value that the only way I can be shown mercy is by giving mercy. But the Bible clearly teaches that we are saved by grace, not works. And you see, what that mentality does is it turns back grace and goes back to a works-based salvation. It takes these traits and makes them something you try to earn. And you see, as I began to wrestle with this, I began to realize that I could never show enough mercy to earn God's mercy. I couldn't forgive enough people in this world to ever earn God's forgiveness. 
So I am dependent on His grace. And what did I tell you the definition of grace is? Unmerited favor. You know what unmerited means? Unearned. You see, God doesn't give me mercy because I do something. He doesn't give me mercy because of my behavior. He gives me mercy because of His character. God gives you mercy because He is merciful. And God forgives you, not because you earned it or because you forgive everybody, but because He is forgiving. And God doesn't love you because you're the most loving person on this earth. God loves you because He is a loving, forgiving, and merciful God. When I begin to recognize that mercy, it changes everything. So what is Jesus saying here? Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. But here's the key. I hope you hold, grab this. I don't produce mercy because I'm merciful. I produce mercy because I've been given great mercy. You see, the mercy I show is a reflection of the mercy I've received. Get that? The forgiveness I show is a reflection of the forgiveness I receive. That's what Jesus was saying. The love I show is a reflection of the love I receive. So what is your mercy showing? If the mercy in your life is a reflection of how much mercy you've been given, then it should change everything. Because you see, when I understand and recognize how much mercy I have been given. I didn't deserve mercy. I was, I was hard to get along with. I was obnoxious. I was rude. I was someone that doesn't deserve forgiveness, but yet God still gave me mercy. When I begin to think about that, when I begin to sing about His mercy, when I begin to recognize who I am apart from God, I can't help but be merciful because I've been given such incredible great mercy. And all that comes back to my point. If I struggle with mercy, I don't have a mercy problem. I have a poor in spirit problem. The first beatitude. Because see, my issue is not really mercy. My issue is understanding what I've been given. My issue is understanding who I am and who God is and what He did for me. And my fear is that so many people in the church have gotten so comfortable that they've forgotten how much they needed salvation. They've forgotten how much they needed forgiveness, how much they needed mercy. They've forgotten where they were headed apart from God. And because they have forgotten, they are not seeing God's character come out in their hearts. The more I focus on God, the more I focus on what God's done for me, I can't help be merciful. You see, I am merciful because so much of my life, my heart, my nature, my attitude, my purposes, they're all wrapped around the mercy God gave me. Does that make sense? I am merciful because I've been given incredible mercy. And I can't help but let that come out. And when it doesn't come out, it's not because you're not trying. It's because you are keeping it from coming out by getting in the way. I'd love to end this sermon this morning by telling you that you need to forgive somebody. I mean, that's a good thing. I'd love to end this sermon by telling you that person that popped in your head a minute ago that was obnoxious and rude, you need to be more patient with them. I'd love to tell you this morning that the culmination of this message is when you leave here, open your eyes and open your ears to ways that you can meet the needs of others and help others. All of those are good things, but those won't produce mercy. 
See, I'd love for you to do those things, not because I'm telling you to, but because it's in your heart. But they don't produce mercy in and of themselves. So what am I asking you to do this morning? I'm asking you to let God speak to your heart about where you stand with mercy. I'm asking God to let you see a little bit about how much mercy you've received compared to how much mercy you give. I'm asking you to just simply in just a moment when we close to say, God, open my eyes. Not just to the needs around me. Open my eyes to who I am and all that I've been given. And Father, forgive me for withholding what I so desperately needed from those around me that desperately need it. Ask for God to produce in you a heart of mercy. At the end of the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus looks at each one of them and says, go and do likewise. This morning we end this message by saying, go and do likewise. Blessed, happy, joyful are the merciful because they remember and recognize how much mercy they've been given. Let's pray.